Hello, my name's Alex Clark and welcome to the Cambridge Literary Festival podcast. My guest this time is Jill Hornby, author of The Hive and All Together Now, who for her third book has delved into the past and the wonderful world of Jane Austen's sister, Cassandra. Well, this was the book I've always wanted to write, actually. And the first two, while I'm very fond of them, and I think everyone should read them, were more like a kind of training bra sort of thing, because I'd had the idea for Miss Austen first. I mean, like 20 years ago or something. I also had the idea for The Hive. And it seemed an easier way to get into things, to just write about the world that was entirely around me, which I knew, obviously, very well. I mean, I had done my research because I had four children and they've been to four primary schools and so I knew my stuff. It was a great way of getting into the form of the novel, the, the length of a novel, the structure of it and the sort of the way you have to breathe differently through a novel, differently from any other sort of art form. But Cassandra had first sort of hit me 27 years ago when we moved into this house in Kimbury. And we were told that there was this Jane Austen connection and that Cassandra had been engaged to the son of the house um, who'd lived here and the Austens had visited regularly. But tragedy intervened before the wedding and Cassandra never married and she and Jane lived together for the rest of Jane's life. And so she began to haunt me then, sort of, she came here on their last Christmas together hers and Tom's and she waved away his trap before dawn as he went off to the other side of the world and I thought about her there and round here and sort of walking around in our garden waiting for him to come home and stuff like that and then I was completely coincidentally asked 15 years ago to write a biography of Jane for young children for eight to 12 year olds and that was when I came across the burning of the letters And I thought, oh, now that's a novel, Burning Letters, because Cassandra sat down towards the end of her life and burnt nearly all of the letters that she and Jane had shared over Jane's lifetime. So that seemed to me a ripe sort of thing. And then when I began to research the life, these two different Cassandras swam up before me. The one is the one that Jane is writing to in the 160-odd letters we've got left, which are where Jane worships her sister, her elder sister, and she thinks she's funny and she trusts her every word and she trusts her literary judgment. And then you read the family memoir and they describe Jane as this joyful, wonderful, perfect, blessed human being. And Cassandra is a really dry and grumpy old stick. I, I got terribly defensive on Cassandra's behalf from then on because... I could see what was going on here. She was the not famous one and she was being compared. And also she lived longer. Jane died at 41 and it was a terrible blow. And Cassandra lived on into her 70s, uh, which is never a good idea from the point of view of one's own PR. So I very much wanted to defend her. Yes, I mean, of course, what we know her in the kind of wider sense is as that keeper of the literary flame, as that defender of Jane, that harvester of Jane's reputation, her literary executor. And, of course, somebody who was grief-stricken by, as you say, her her premature death. But really, in a broader sense, we know very little about her, don't we? So it must have seemed 
ripe to to just say, okay, here she is. I'm going to recognise her. Exactly. I mean, that's Cassandra's doing that we know so little about her. She didn't just burn lots of letters from Jane. She burned all of her letters back. What we have is a sort of biographical sketch of Cassandra. She was born, she was three years older than Jane. They were very close. They went to school for a bit. She met Tom. They were going to get married. She didn't marry. And she died when she was in her 70s. We know a lot of her comings and goings. And we know that she was the perfect sort of universal aunt, that she was always the one the family sent for when somebody was giving birth or somebody was dying or somebody was sick. That was how she spent her days and that she nursed Jane to her death. Jane died in her arms. But she has absolutely never been forgiven for this bonfire that she had in her last years. It's something that comes up, isn't it, again and again in this idea of literary reputations, this very strange place that is occupied of of the person who has to preserve the reputation and the decisions they make and we blame them for or commend them for. But it's also something to do with, with women here, isn't it? And the idea of this woman who is forever nurturing, forever loving, forever useful until the point where she really kind of outlives her usefulness. Absolutely. I mean, that's a big theme in my novel, because that was what infuriated me about the family memoir, that they didn't have a good word to say for Cassandra. But she'd been there at all of their births. She had taught them their letters. She was the one who had nursed their parents in their last days and all the rest of it. No thanks, no gratitude. She was a really good woman. And Jane saw that. Jane, who was, you know, not a sufferer of fools or impervious to the failings of others, thought that that Cassandra was a marvel. And yet these people who'd taken from her, really, for sort of all of their lives, didn't have the generosity to acknowledge what she'd done for them. And her actions in cleaning up Jane's reputation is very much, I mean, the women, it was always the women who went and laid out the body and, and the women who tidied the house after the death and cleared everything out when they had to move. And it's a similar sort of thing. She was tidying up Jane's reputation. She was preserving it perfectly. And I do find, I've always found legacy management fascinating. And it's something we can't do now because we leave traces of ourselves all over the place. So there's no way one person could sort of catch up with it and sweep up after after we were dead. But you were able to do it then because everything was on paper. All facts and all feelings were on paper or they couldn't live on. And paper is very easy to destroy, as Cassandra did so efficiently. She did. And I mean, this is really the engine that drives the novel, isn't it? It's her sort of, in her kind of older age, she has the occasion to go and rescue these letters. And she must do it in a terribly sort of clandestine fashion. But of course, what you also had to do was to imagine your way back into the time, the place, and actually the content of of the letters that she destroyed. That must have been an enormous kind of feat of imagination and quite daunting, I would have thought. Yes, I'm slightly amazed now. I had the nerve looking back on it. It's very odd. You know, you have those moments of um, feeling quite bold and then you shudder afterwards. It rather reminds me of um, 
I gave birth to two children at home and now I think, what on earth was I playing at? And I rather think that about this novel. So I'm very delighted to have got away with it. I think it kind of helped, actually, that I wasn't commissioned to write it. And so I kept putting off Jane's entrance because I was fine with Cassandra. I kind of felt, I felt Cassandra. I, I really sort of could understand her just from her life story. But with Jane, just having her walking around and talking and thinking things and having conversations seemed to be such an act of sacrilege that I'd never get away with it. And so she kept, I kept delaying her entrance into the novel and then I'd write something and then I'd rub it out and walk the dog. But then when I got her, actually, I couldn't shut her up and I had to squish her so that it didn't all become about her because I was determined to give Cassandra her due. But what I said to myself was, probably nobody is ever going to read this. So, you know, just do it and see how you get on. And in fact, nobody read a word while I was writing it. I didn't show it to anybody until the end. You were wrong, thankfully. Lots of people have read it, myself included, and have enormously enjoyed it. But that feeling, it's so interesting, isn't it? That feeling of sacrilege, of transgression. And it's something to do, perhaps particularly with a writer like Jane Austen and her environs. We have turned her into something She's just so preeminent in our culture. I mean, apart from the fact that she's on finally a banknote, I mean, she is just somebody who we think of as a very, very special sort of English writer, isn't she? She is. I mean, she was absolutely brilliant. But I do think it's so important to her reputation that Cassandra has given us absolutely no reason to dislike her. When you think of Dickens, we know everything about Dickens you know, and we do not know anything at all, really, about Jane. And she's become a figure slightly like sort of God, in that you know the sort of basic idea, and you can, you personally can decide God is whatever you, you want him to be. And it's a bit the same with Jane. So she's become this, this completely perfect figure into which people put their ideal version of her and th and there's no facts to dispute it there are occasionally in the existing letters just little bits of evidence fragments half sentences which show what a wicked tongue she had and a wicked pen and then you think blimey what is it that she they cut out but because there's so little of it, people just go to the books and they think, I think most of the fans think she is Lizzie Bennet, you know, terribly clever and terribly attractive, could do whatever she wanted and always saw through everybody. And I think she wasn't that. I think she was awkward and difficult and spiky. And Cassandra managed her a lot in life as she managed her after her death. It's so interesting, isn't it, that, that you know, probably what she did was to put all those selves, whether or not they were oppressed or whether or not just in in everyday life she found them difficult to express, but they went into the books. And, of course, she's very unlikely to have been like Elizabeth Bennet because Elizabeth Bennet was a fictional character who'd been worked over and made for, for the pages. But it's fascinating, isn't it, that idea 
we have even of those those Austin heroines probably enormously influenced by costume drama but as kind of heroines whereas in fact they're enormously difficult people in some way I mean think of you know Emma Woodhouse obviously um spoilt and problematic and vain and silly sometimes I mean it seems to me that what Jane Austen does give us and and therefore what sort of Cassandra was partly sort of looking after was this sense of the complexity of female life in particular I suppose Absolutely. And I think the other thing that is overlooked and never comes across in the period dramas is that all of them, apart from Emma, who is in a spiritual way, actually, but the rest of them are in peril. Those Bennett girls are in massive trouble. Their father could drop dead at any second and they do not have a bean. Mrs. Bennett, I think, is the heroine of Pride and Prejudice, and Mr. Bennett is a nightmare just sitting fecklessly in his study, ignoring the fact that they were off to become governesses or companions to old ladies or something. And all of them, but you know, Emma's soul is in trouble because she's so jolly spoiled. So it's all about the sort of despair of the female condition, really, which is something that Jane knew all too well. She too knew peril in her life, and she was never going to get Mr. Darcy or Mr. Bingley along to rescue her because she was averagely good looking she didn't have a bean and she was quite spiky and always said the wrong thing in company so I think what she was really expressing were the difficulties of being a single woman in that time but because she rescues them all and that's what we're in there for that doesn't come across strongly enough I don't think Yes, yes, exactly. Tell me a little bit about the experience of actually being rooted in in the place that you were writing about, because as you say, you you moved into the village of Kintbury 20 years ago. And just to have that kind of, obviously it's changed, I'm sure, but to have that kind of landscape around you, that sense of the traces of the past, do you think you might never have written the book if that hadn't been the case? Or was it always something that would come to you? Yes, I think about that because, of course, everything I I did and I know was in the public domain. However, it, I suppose it spoke to me in a different way. We're not actually in the same house. Our house was put up in 1860, but the footprint's the same, the cellar's the same, the garden's the same. So when Jane came here, she was looking at the same view and, and walking on the, on the same ground. And so much of the village is still the same, oddly enough. You know, the high street is, and the church where they would have worshipped, that that is. Their connection was this, these great friends of the Austins, the Fowle family. And there were three Reverend Fowles for 100 years, grandfather, father and son. And the second one had been George Austin's best friend at Oxford, so they were great, great family friends, and they visited here until they they all left in 1640, the Austins did. So it was a real home to them, and it's been a real home to us. We've been here for 27 years, and so our children have grown up here and so on. It was it was a joy, really, to think, you know, well, where, what about this scene, and just look out the window and not even have to put my boots on. So it was great. It, it was lovely. And so it was all local papers and and the and the parish records and stuff like that. I must say, Jill, the books that must have been written in your house. 
Your husband is <laughs> yes. also a writer and you're you're a productive pair. I think it's, it's fair quite to say. Fertile territory, I must say. Yeah. Um I, I wanted to um ask you, obviously the book has just been so well received and I, I find it such an enjoyable and also moving very moving read. But I wondered how the kind of world of the professional Austinites has has revealed it. Were you sort of anxious about that? I mean, the people who really do spend a lot of their lives studying Austin, talking about Austin, the Jainites, how have they reacted? I think anxious is an understatement. I was absolutely terrified. I was lucky because I got to know a few of them before. They knew I was doing it, the serious gatekeepers. In particular, someone called Deirdre Le Fay, who really has invented Austin studies, has edited the letters, has done this chronology without which I could not have written the book. A huge tome saying what every Austin was doing on every single day from the sort of Tudor times to the 20th century. And I've got a very gung-ho American editor, and she said, hey, let's send it to Deirdre Le Fay. And I said, let's not, really, let's not do that. She is absolutely terrifying, but marvellous, marvellous, but terrifying. And this email came back saying something like, I've enjoyed reading your text in the garden, in some way that I couldn't tell whether she'd enjoyed the garden or the text. Then there came this huge long list of howlers of, no, 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 they would not have bounced on the bedsprings, for bedsprings were invented in 1789 or something like that. No, 1889, all this kind of stuff. Then at the end, it said, your publishers asked me for a blurb. I do not do gush or hypocrisy, but I shall try to say something encouraging. Anyway, she then gave this rave <laughs> sentence. And then this gung-ho American sent it to Claire Tomlin. And I was, oh, my God. And then sort of practically return of post came back something lovely. So I have been so lucky. Not one of them has said a word against it. So I've been very, very lucky. I can well imagine what an anxious sort of moment that is because, you know, it's just terrifying that somebody's going to point out an error about bed springs, isn't it? Exactly. Bed springs would be awful. But as I say, she is rather like God. So it's a bit like writing a book about, you know, having Jesus wandering around or something. You are, you get into trouble. Now tell me, having done this... Um, what do you think might be next? Have you now got a sort of taste for delving back into the past or do you think you've got to firmly root yourself once again in the present? Very much the past. I've absolutely loved it. Actually, I, I'm going to do more Austins. All I ever wanted to write about was family. That's what the three books have in common. They're all three or four families in a country village. And if you're interested in families then the Austins are the most amazing family. There were eight children and they all had the most extraordinary lives. And apart from the girls, thousands of children that, that they all had. It's funny, every event I've done, and I'm sure it would have happened at the Cambridge Literary Festival, somebody has come up at the end and said, I'm a descendant <laughs> because there are so many of them around. I'm sure Cambridge has got about 20 of them. Uh, the amazing stories of that family. So, yes, I am I am doing something on that. 
So they turned out to be very fertile territory. And I should just say that, um, you know, we're chatting now kind of in lieu of the fact that world of events have, have meant that we won't be won't be seeing you in Cambridge in the immediate future. But we really hope you will come and talk to the festival audience when we're all allowed to meet again. And indeed, those Austins will, I'm sure, crop up in the audience. We better make a row for them, I suppose. <laughs> I will look forward to it. Won't it be lovely when we're back to doing all that again? Won't it? Um, but in the meantime, I, you know, I would think this is, aside from all the worrying that we're all doing, I hope this is a sort of productive time to be a writer and get some time to squirrel away in your study. Well, thank you. I know it should be. I'm so fed up of hearing about all of the great works of literature <laughs> that were written during plagues because I think they didn't have Twitter to go on every five minutes. Um, but I am trying to be more disciplined, yes. That was Jill Hornby, who joined me on the Cambridge Literary Festival podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it. The Cambridge Literary Festival is a small charity run by a team of four people. And the Listening Festival has been put together by a group of people who've all donated their time to make it happen. If you'd like to donate something to support the festival's future, please visit the Literary Festival website to do so. See you next time. Listening.